Hey, 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 film fans. Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It is the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. It is a brand spanking new Happy New Year 2024. This is the sixth year of the Second Day Film Podcast, if you can believe it. Uh, I'm Brandon Champion, your host, joined by the philosophizer of film, Mike Nichols. And uh, buddy, I mean, Happy New Year. Uh, can you believe six years of the Second Day Film Podcast? Yeah, that I I did not know that until you just said that this second. Six years is is pretty impressive. And what a, what a six years for movies it has been. I mean, it's been a lot. You know, if you think back to it, you know, it's been a lot of good movies. I know I sent you my list of when I did the top 25 films of 2018. So mm-hmm. that was probably a little trip down memory lane for you. We obviously went through a, a global wow. pandemic where this was a way where we kind of stayed connected and talked through movies through that. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of good conversations, I think. You know, it's got this pod, if nothing else, has gotten you and me and Evan Dean and the popcorn correspondent uh, kind of thinking about things and just sort of uh, – thinking about the ways that movies can sort of teach us about ourselves in the world. And that's kind of my favorite thing about film, if we're being honest, just the way that um, it provides sort of a lens into topics that we might not otherwise talk about. Well, it's also like one of my favorite reasons for doing this podcast is it, it kind of holds me accountable to go out and watch stuff and to keep being engaged with movies and TV shows. Like, I mean, like there's so many times where I'm like, ah, I don't care if I see this movie. And then I'll get a text from you being like, hey, we get, we should review this one in the pod. Like, go see it. I'm like, all right, fine. And But but I'm always happier that I've done it. You're like a, a workout buddy from afar. But if the workout was binging movies and TV shows. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to be on this podcast with you, buddy. Happy New Year to you. Let's make 2024 our best movie year ever. All right, even though, even though I don't think anything good's coming out this year, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll leave our, my words. Maybe I'll leave my words. We're working out our minds, Mike, is what we're doing as we talk about yeah. this. And this is episode eighty-eight. Uh, so I mean, eighty-eight episodes in six years. I don't know if that's impressive or unimpressive, you know. Uh, but you know, that's that's quite a bit of films that we've reviewed. So uh, that was also my hockey number. So this is going to be a special episode for me, I think. Also, 88 is the number of listeners we've had and throughout the entire run as well. So, yeah, 88 episodes, 88 listeners. Not bad. Not yep. bad, my friend. And we love all 88 of you. But uh, mm-hmm. let's get into it, Mike. As I mentioned, sixth year on the podcast. The Golden Globes did happen. I don't think we're really going to break it down like we have in previous years. And I, I didn't have a chance to watch the show. But I did notice that the show Beef that you have been desperately getting me to watch, which I, I mm-hmm. have not watched yet. Uh, but uh, I plan to, but I saw it was a huge winner on the night. That had to make you pretty happy. I was very happy about that. Beef is an amazing show, amazingly acted, amazingly written, amazing. So well done, Beef. Yep. Once I watch that, I think we have to talk about it on the pod because this is just not that I don't believe you. And also, I, as I digress here again, one more time, uh, a reason I do love this pod is because, yeah, like you said, sometimes we're not going to watch things, but then you and me will like text each other and be like, okay, I randomly put this on and it was actually really amazing. And then oh, the other yeah. one will watch it and kind of agree. So I think it's like we kind of keep each other in check. Uh, so I guess it is kind of like a workout buddy in that way. So. We we also sometimes like we'll watch stuff like years later. Like you really want me to watch The Green Knight so we can review it. And then I've I only just watched The Green Knight like last week or something. And I texted you like, hey, I watched The Green Knight this morning. Uh, it was like a Saturday or Sunday morning or something. And uh, yeah, so sometimes that happens too. But but we do watch stuff. 
Our letterbox and IMDb pages are very impressively filled. <laughs> There's always room for more, too. That's the great always thing about room. Film, Mike. We can never yeah. watch them all. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, so let's get into it. We're going to focus today's episode kind of on, uh, I mentioned the Golden Globe nominations. A lot of these have been nominated for Golden Globes, which is usually a pretty good uh, precursor or sort of glimpse into what's going to be nominated for Academy Awards. So a lot of these films are kind of what you you might call Oscar bait or, uh, you know, as I texted Mike and he got confused, prestige film season. Um, but that's kind uh, yeah. of what these films are. They're sort of artsy. They're um you know, they're auteurs, they're directors that, well, most of them are not this first one that we're going to talk about, but uh, they're kind of unique original films. And those are the kind of films we like to talk about. The first one, I guess, is an original film. It's directed by Ridley Scott. It's called Napoleon. <laughs> uh, obviously, he's not really an auteur. He's kind of like a big blockbuster director, um, but obviously a well-known name. Um, this film obviously is about Napoleon Bonaparte, the, uh, great legendary, uh, tyrannical, um, sheepish. I mean, he's a lot, you can put a lot of adjectives to describe Napoleon, but, uh, this film is an epic, of course, that details the checkered rise and fall of the French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte in his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his first wife, Josephine. Uh, it stars Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby in those two main roles, and Mike, this is a film that I definitely wanted to see. I mean, you and me are both definitely suckers for historical epics. I mean, Ridley Scott, say what you want about him. He has made some good films out there before, and he's obviously a well-known director with some talent. Uh, I kind of compared this film to um, that. I don't know if you remember that Alexander movie that came out with Colin Farrell yeah, uh, many yeah. years ago about Alexander the Great. And I think that's kind of what I was thinking about when I'm, when I was watching this movie and you know, that film had a lot of flaws and I think it had a lot of the same flaws that this film had where it made me think like, I, you know, there was some entertaining stuff in this film that I'll get to. But like, I often wonder if like sweeping biopics like this work better in theory than they do in execution, because mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a figure that's as iconic and important as Napoleon, I think it's incredibly hard to like show the kind of person they were in two hours and like kind of show everything they did. Like Napoleon did so much in life that you can't possibly depict it all in a film. Right. So what sort of ends up happening in the, is the film sort of becomes like more like snippets or like brief glimpses into parts of his life spread out across like decades. Um, and so what happens is the complete picture kind of just ends up a little bit muddled. So I, I think my main criticism of this film uh, is that it doesn't feel very cohesive. It's more just like a bloated jumble with some good stuff and bad stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, it, it is also, like, as someone who doesn't know anything really about Napoleon, I was I was actually a little embarrassed going into the film, like, realizing, like, how little I know about this major world figure. Um, but I did get to see it with, like, an authentic French person uh, who was in town, and we went to go see it with him. And he was like, oh, I, I don't think the... I don't think they liked Napoleon very much. I was like, well, it was made by a, by a Brit. So, you know, maybe not, but uh, yeah, like it, I agree with you that the pacing um, and the, the focus just feels so epic and big. It's hard to relate to it or like even follow like, wait, if, why would this big epic thing just happen? And then this big epic thing just happened. And then like, aren't there like people and lives? Like, where's all that? Like, I think sometimes with the historical epics, you get these really big figures surrounded by like hundreds of extras who are all supposed to be like the whole council or the whole, you know, uh, Congress or something. 
And then this one person just says something and everyone's just like all yelling in agreement. And it's like, that's not like one guy just walks in and says something and then everyone in the world agrees with him. And then he'll go here. There's a battle. Thousands of generals are standing around him. He says one thing and then it's just executed. Like, why, why aren't like, why aren't they also the focus or why? Like, sometimes I think the epicness of something that has so many different faces in it makes you realize, hey, all these other faces are important. Why is this only one person getting like the limelight or the glory? And so in those ways, epics, historical, like epic biographies almost, almost like hurt themselves by trying to be so epic, I think. Yeah. And if you're going to like try and, and if you are like the film's called Napoleon. So I get like, if you are going to try and like just zero in on one person, you should do it better than, than, than this film did. Right. Because like, I agree that you really do need like a baseline knowledge of the events going on at this time, because it really jumps around a ton and it doesn't really explain much. You know, it, yeah. like, sometimes they'll throw th like, you know, a little, you know, writing on the screen or they'll tell you who someone is, or they'll tell you what time it is, or they'll tell you where it's at, but it's jumping around in events in time so much that if you don't have a baseline knowledge of the reign of terror or the French revolution or these campaigns that Napoleon went on, it's kind of hard to put it on the timeline in itself. And if you're, when you, if you want to zero it in and have like a movie that's just about Napoleon, like you want him to be the star and you want to kind of get into his head and kind of figure out what made him tick, which I think is what this film was trying to do. Uh, it might not be best to have a British director do it because this film does <laughs> feel very anti-French. Like I'm not, I'm yeah. not surprised that your, your French friend would say that because it does feel like they kind of try and, I don't know, paint him as like kind of more, you know, obviously he was a tyrant. He did a lot of crazy stuff, but I know he was very popular with the French people for a lot of things he did. I know he made a lot of reforms that were actually beneficial and the yeah. film largely tries to ignore all that and kind of it just focus on other stuff. It tries to focus in and tell us who Napoleon is through this relationship with Vanessa Kirby. And I think some of that works. Like there's clearly an intense passion. And I think the chemistry between the two actors is pretty good. Um, but I just feel like a film called Napoleon should have focused more on the man, man himself and what drives him instead of just giving us like these random snippets of his life. Yeah. And uh, it, it is tough to ever feel like what is the impact of all this when every scene is just in an even bigger palace or in an even bigger epic like battle. It's just like, oh, and now we have this and now now we've conquered this. And now it's like. Yeah, but how does this affect the characters or the people of France? You never really see the people of France at all in this. It's really just these big elite elite players of generals and, you know, Robespierre, like political leaders, nobles. There's very little of the average person's story in this. And uh, boy, did Napoleon's life affect a lot of very average people through really intense things like um not all for good but but also a lot of good that again they never showed um, i just think there's so much going on that it's hard to get all that in one movie you know like ridley scott's trying to tell this guy's entire life through like different points of it and there's just a lot happening like i don't know yeah. how you could make a movie that can really zero in and focus on you know the plight of the common folk while also trying to tell Napoleon's story. I think it's just kind of hard to, to get it all in there, especially when you're dedicating so much time to, to this romance with, with Vanessa Kirby's character. Yeah. And I, that, that's actually a good lead into talking about the acting in this. Cause it was strange hearing everyone, particularly Joaquin Phoenix, who I know he's a good actor, 
But man, it just felt surreal having him as Napoleon and, and like saying like, oh, this is for the glory of France. And it's like, this is the most American accent. Like it, yeah. it was just, it was, it was bizarre. It was, it was just, it pulled me out of it when I'm hearing him saying things about France with like this little American in it or I, I don't know. Like, and even like everyone who's in it is like British and they're all like, you're like, oh yeah, we're all the fr- we're all the French. We all. It's like, okay, this is like, I don't know. Like the acting was good, but man, the accents really pulled me out of it. Um, yeah, it's hard to really like dive in and have it feel authentic when all the French people are speaking like English in an American accent. It's just it's a little bit yeah. distracting. I mean, I did like. I did like the battle scenes. You know, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. They were well done, I thought, especially the Battle of Austerlitz when they were, you know, shooting the cannonballs of the ice. I know that a lot of this, and I've I've learned from reading about it, just a lot of historical inaccuracies in this. They change up the timeline for a lot of stuff. I think I've heard that's rubbed a lot of historians and especially French historians the wrong way with the liberties that they kind of took. That kind of stuff doesn't bother me as much because this is a film. It's a film based on a real person. I don't need the battle to be... 100% accurate to how it was. If it entertains me in the theater, if it if it's well done, which I, I do think the battle scenes were well done, and it was kind of like certain fighting styles and battles that we haven't seen a ton put on screen, you know, like going into ancient, or not ancient, but like, you know, this time period, Russia is not something that I've seen on film a lot, and I did find yeah. myself going down like Wikipedia rabbit holes, like reading about these battles that are pictured on screen. So I did appreciate the film for at least giving me an entrance into that kind of stuff. And I did think that the the cinematic aspects of this film were pretty well done. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about some nice things, which is, yeah, the Ridley Scott is, I think, one of the best directors in terms of immersing you in a like in the look and feel of a historic world. Like when you're watching one of his movies, you, like you feel like someone just has a camera, you know, in 1793 or in the Middle Ages or in the Roman Coliseum, you know, like Ridley Scott is great at like putting people around him who will make amazing sets, like have really cool costumes that like, like it seemed to even feel like they look real on camera and uh, just everything about that, I think he does great. And again, this this film did that too. Like beautiful costumes, looked really good. Um, especially with how many different types of costumes there were. Like different, like there was French soldiers, but then there was like you know uh, Russian soldiers and uh, all these different um, style and English soldiers and, and just all these different costumes and all the different like layers of the costumes and the you know the different ranks and just all that looked really good. And I will praise the film for that. Agreed, the battle scenes were, like, cool-looking. But again, because it just focused on the epicness of this, like, it, it it didn't really make me care at all. Like, I'm watching all these bombs go off or all these guys charge a field, and I'm like, I don't really care. Like, it hasn't made me care about any of these people. And and also, like, I, I did wish, for all it, like, built up as Napoleon's this genius... I wish there had been some kind of portrayal of something that he was doing that was unique or different. Like, Well, well the Battle well, of Toulon, more... that siege in the, the first siege of Toulon, they kind of show like how he's like terrified. First of all, I did appreciate that. How, like he yeah. was terrified and they, he did. They did kind of show like how he came up with this plan to storm the, the fort and then bomb the ships from the fort. You know, that, that was kind of like a stroke of genius, I think, from him, that they did kind of yeah. emphasize that he was, like, brilliant early on in his career. But there wasn't a ton of that other than that. 
Yeah, everything else is just like, oh, he has more men, he's firing cannons, and they all die. And it's like, oh, that's like, that is was that a tactic, or was that just, I have cannons and you don't? Uh, the one time it does show a tactic is, like, Wellington does something at uh, Waterloo, where he has his soldiers, like, stand in, like, uh, infantry squares, and you're like, oh, okay, like, that is showing something different. Uh, so it shows Waterloo, or, or the Wellington really is having this clever moment. But yeah, a lot of the other stuff, I'm like, it doesn't seem like Napoleon's doing anything that that incredible or wild. It's just like, oh, he's got tons of cannons and he let, he put them on a hill. Like, and yeah, then he and, shot his guys. Like, oh, he movie. hid. Oh, brilliant. Wow. No one had ever thought of this until Napoleon. And it's like, uh, th- th- this guy was a military genius. I mean, it, it's sad the movie didn't convey that more. Yeah, the movie's not called Wellington. So, <laughs> but yeah. um, I guess I guess what this movie can kind of tell me is when you do get a sweeping epic like Ben Hur or Lawrence of Arabia or the Ten Commandments or just you know even Gladiator something like that you know even Troy is a movie that I thought did a pretty good job with a huge sweeping story. I think it just mm-hmm. tells you, you know, it's hard to pull off when you have this much subject matter and you're dealing with this much history over this long of a period of time. It's hard to find a cohesive condensed story that also gives uh, enough attention and time to character development and tell us who the his- historical figures really were. So um, I think we need to appreciate those historical epics when we do get it. You know, this one was, was entertaining enough, I guess I gave it a 6.5 out of 10. Where are you at? Eh, I'll give it a B minus. Maybe C right, well, plus. All right. Well, that's Napoleon, uh, you know, maybe a little bit disappointing from us, but uh, you know, Probably still worth a watch if you're into into history. So uh, that'll do it for the Napoleon review uh, from Napoleon to a film um, that is a little bit smaller, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, you go on to from Napoleon to another historical figure that I knew nothing about. Uh, and that is <laughs> American composer Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film called Maestro. It's directed by uh, the very talented Bradley Cooper, who also produced and had a writing hand in this. He also stars in it alongside Carrie Mulligan, Matt Bomer, um, who else is in this? Oh, our girl Maya Hawk is in this. Um, Sarah Silverman. I mean, hello. I did not see Sarah Silverman popping up in this kind of film, but here we are. Uh, this film t- t- tells the story of Leonard Bernstein, uh, and it really focuses on the love story and chronicles the lifelong relationship of conductor, conductor composer Leonard Bernstein and actress Felicia Montalegre Cone Bernstein. Yeah, I, I just botch that real bad mike um but you know this is a film that's getting a lot of buzz or for award season bradley cooper's performance carrie mulligan's performance both getting a lot a lot of attention and this film starts with a with an interesting quote from bernstein it says a work of art does not answer questions it provokes them and its essential meaning is in the tension between the between the contradictory answers that was a great connoisseur, oh, I know, as connoisseurs of quote. art, Mike, as people who have worked in the humanities, I guess, you know, we were both writers. I am a writer still. I think that you were dabbled in screenwriting and, you know, you do improv and stuff. I think I think that quote can resonate with people like us. Yeah. Yeah, I love that quote. Like, I, I still think about that quote. Um, and it's it's a great quote for this movie because the movie is about him struggling with, like, two sides of himself and like two emotions that seem to drive a lot of his, his music, like, which is like love and hate. And then 
you know, his relationship with his wife, uh, as well as his, you know, like, uh, closeted uh, self. Um, yeah, it's a it's a perfect quote uh, for what the themes of the movie are going to be about the duality of, you know, of Lenny Bernstein. Mm-hmm. I don't think this was maybe it's maybe not the film that's up my alley. I mean, I can't say I have an immense understanding for classical music or composing <laughs> or anything like that. It's not exactly my uh, cup of tea. I mean, obviously, we both have a deep appreciation for composing with our love for film. I mean, no film is complete without a fantastic score. Guys like mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer, John Williams, um, Gore Verbinski. I mean, these are guys who have actually, I think Gore Verbinski's a director, but anyways, uh, guys who create sort of the soul of the film are composers. And this guy was obviously known for, for uh, composing many plays, including West Side Story. Um, so from that standpoint, I can appreciate it. That being said, I'm not sure that I have enough of an understanding for this film to really be like one of my favorites. Like, it's an incredible pair of performances. I mean, Bradley Cooper is unrecognizable at times. I mean, he's got a long way to go. Is that a nose joke? <laughs> uh, kind of, but like, but like he, he's come a long way from those rom-coms, Mike. Yeah, like, yeah, really that's, that's like, fair. To think about the roles that he's taking on now, and, and this is one of the more like physical acting performances that I've seen in a long time when he's composing and he's just out there like, just giving it all and just getting lost in the song and getting lost in the moment. So from a performance standpoint, it was obviously incredible on a tip of the hat, but I have to say, Mike, I was kind of bored by this movie. Like I I was pretty bored. I'm not going to lie. Like outside of that one scene in the cathedral, you know, the one I'm talking about where he's just going at it and the they're singing and the symphony's going crazy. That was sort of giving me like whiplash vibes in the way that the scene just sort of like jumped off the screen and made you feel like, the passion and the drama that overtakes someone when they're in that moment. Um, you know, it, from a filmmaking standpoint, you can tell that the film has some flair and you can tell Cooper is an immense talent, but that just, it didn't really keep me from being bored, man. I like, I, I wasn't loving like the way that this movie was captivating me, despite all the stuff that was going on. I almost delivered almost for the first time ever deliberated increasing the playback speed on Netflix when this movie was happening, especially in the middle part. Uh, maybe that's sacrilegious because I know a lot of people are loving this movie, but I, I'm sorry. I was kind of bored. Um, Interesting. Wow. Of all, like of all the things you've watched, cause you, we've watched some boring movies. Mm-hmm. This was the first one that made you. Wow. Okay. I don't know. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the mood I was in when I was watching it. Maybe it's, uh, you know, these things can be weird. You know, I, I do think sometimes how you react to a movie can be impacted by your mood or what happened during the day or this, you know, the circumstances that you're watching it under, but maybe it's just like the subject matter, a, a composer in the, you know, in it just, it didn't captivate me. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it was bad. I can appreciate the art of the film. I can appreciate some of it, what it was trying to say, but, there was a lot of scenes where I was just like, I'm not really that interested. And I don't know. That's just how I feel. But how, how did you feel about the film? Um, I, I also like, don't really know anything about Leonard Bernstein, uh, nor, nor do I know much about classical music and, and composing. Um, so I agree that this was a film going into where I was like, yeah, this isn't going to be for me. That's fine. Uh, I can still watch it and be like, Hey, I can tell this is well-made or, I can tell that, you know, this guy was important and that, you know, he he meant a lot to a lot of people. 
Um, but I, I did find the relationships interesting. And I really thought um, Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan did a great job uh, as their characters. Like, I, they were interesting to watch. Um, I also think they really had the voices down pat where it really kind of pulls you into that world of like, you know, the thirties and the forties where they're like, Oh yes, darling. Well, of course. I mean, it is what it is, yeah. you know, like, like something about those voices, like put me there. And I was like, okay, yeah, like I'm, I'm buying this. Like, um, uh, yeah. And it was, it was also, I thought very well done the composition, the directing, um, the way they held the camera longer on certain scenes, almost like it was a play. Uh, there were times I wish maybe the camera had pushed in more. Like some of the scenes feel like they're kind of shot far away to make you feel distance. And I I would have preferred more like, nah, like we're getting, the characters are getting into it. Let's get into this with them. Let's, let's, let's be in there with them with it. Um, but uh, yeah, like, good job from Bradley Cooper for both being in this and then directing it. Um, that guy's got a lot of talent and uh, yeah, like overall, I guess I, I will say it was a good movie. Uh, it wasn't one I particularly will probably want to go rewatch or, or care about. Cause again, it's not my thing, but uh, yeah, I say bravo to all, all involved. Um, and as always, uh, you know, my hawk was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I agree. It was well acted. I mean, th these are some of the best performances I've seen all year. I mean, the way that they really are sort of, and I think that the way you're talking about how it kind of embodies that old timey, like, I think that's on purpose. They're trying to sort of get after that golden age of Hollywood feel. I think that's portrayed through the black and white at the start of the film where it kind of like, it's kind of like a memory, right? Like he's thinking back to the memories of his early love life with this lady and how he met her. And it's kind of like channeling the golden age Hollywood, like rom-coms that were so common back in that day. And then it changes to sort of like that technicolor color halfway through the film when it's sort of more like the 70, 80s sort of like when directors were sort of taking the new take on this sort of rom-com where they were starting to focus more on like the imperfections of relationships and kind of like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like Kramer versus Kramer style where it's like, no, it's not all roses and like everyone falls in love on first sight. And it's not like that, like in the golden age. And so as their relationship progresses through the film, I think that's kind of exemplified through the use of black and white and through the use of color. Um, so I kind of appreciated that touch and kind of the ode to films of different times through Hollywood. I guess I just kind of wish the film focused more on his career and like taught us, told us more about this guy and less so on the marriage and kind of his torn sexuality. Like I get that that was probably like a big part of who he was. I just don't think that that made for that interesting of a movie. And I don't know, maybe I'm being contradictory here because I'm, I'm here talking about Napoleon where I want them to focus more on like the person and who he was and less on the sweeping epic. And here I am one film later and like, tell me more about his life and less on how, who he was as a person. So maybe yeah. I'm being a hypocrite, but like, I just, think, maybe. may I just think maybe like in this kind of film, I would have, I cared more about like learning about who this guy was more so than just like the constant, you know, fighting with his wife. But I don't know. Maybe that's just because I wasn't again. Maybe I wasn't like the ideal audience for this. I can still appreciate it for what it was, but I'm not going to be able to get higher than a six out of ten. Well, this is something that is interesting about biopics, too, where kind of like with Napoleon, a lot of biopics, they try to just do someone's whole life. And you basically just get these little snippets of big moments but you miss a lot of 
character development and personalization and and really storytelling because you're really just trying to do a greatest hits of someone's career versus like uh, you're you're telling a purposeful story. Um, and some and, of the best biopics are when they sort of narrow the focus and they focus on like one part of that person's life. This is what I was going to say. Maestro, I think, at least tried to narrow in and focus really on this guy's relationships. Like ultimately his romantic relationships with his wife and with his lovers. So and his relationship with the music itself. Yeah. So I, w- I would say that at least Maestro did try to narrow in this biopic. Um, you know what I mean? And so I respect it a little bit for that. And also like, it was pretty straightforward. Like at no point was like, confused about where he was or what was happening or um and i always thought the acting was good um so yeah i i definitely as a biopic i thought maestro was a better made film than napoleon was uh and uh yeah i think i would give this one a a b b plus i can agree that it was probably better made it just wasn't as entertaining to me so Mm -hmm. you know it's it that's just personal taste i think you know so uh there you go that's that's... or lack of it (laughs) (laughs) okay sorry (laughs) mr mr highbrow over here my bad do you have any sherry with you over there in texas right now you know uh at the moment no but i have a water bottle that i have a sticker on it that says chill pills so maybe i'm over here i'm over here drinking bush light you know Mm because i'm just an unsophisticated neanderthal here in michigan you know so (laughs) not not even not even bud light bush <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm actually drinking <laughs> Buffalo Trace whiskey, which is a very nice whiskey. So uh, mm. I'm sophisticated too, Mike. Uh, speaking yeah. of sophisticated, let's talk about Paul Giamatti, shall we? Uh, mm. Oh yeah. Uh, now there's a bio John Adams. That's like the best biopic ever, and and they did it right because they just did it as a miniseries. So I mean, sometimes I think like a Napoleon miniseries would have worked a lot better than a. Movie. That would be great. That would be great. I'm sure his. I'm sure History Channel's probably done it, and we just don't know about it. I but, mean, imagine uh, like yeah. a Rome style Napoleon mm. miniseries. Yeah, that would be epic. Anyways, speaking of Paul Giamatti, not John Adams, I will not be reviewing that right now, but I will be reviewing The Holdovers. Uh, It tells the story of a cranky history teacher at a remote prep school who is forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. This is directed by the great Alexander Payne and stars Paul Giamatti as the main character, Paul Hunnam. Divine Joy Randolph uh, is also one of the main characters in this, as is Dominic Sessa. Other than that, it's a pretty... um, Slim cast, not a lot going on. Like I had heard positive buzz on this through the film circuits. I uh, sought it out to see if it was playing anywhere here in Grand Rapids. It was only at Celebration Cinema South, which is the one I go to least. Uh, I was at like five o'clock, so I had to kind of dip out of work a little bit early. Hopefully my boss isn't listening. Uh, But I really wanted to see this movie because I had heard a lot of positive buzz and man, did it deliver. Uh, It takes place in 1970s New England, and it really has the look and feel of a a boarding school uh, at that period in time. And really, this is this is a holiday film, Mike, but it's a very different kind of holiday film. Uh, it's sort of a deep reflection on um, grief, on shame, on loneliness. Um, and these are all emotions that we don't think about, but they can be brought about during the holidays. Because, yeah, if you have things going for you and you're living your life, you know, and if you're fortunate, the holidays means friends. It means family. It means merriment. It means cheer. It means doing goodwill towards others. 
But for a lot of people who don't have that stuff or aren't blessed or as fortunate to have those kind of relationships, the holidays can bring about, you know, some sadness or loneliness or, um, you know, you don't have those people to sort of confide in or connect with during the holidays. And this film kind of examines that in a really smart way because you end up with Paul Giamatti, who's kind of like this lonely, curmudgeon-y um, professor at this prep school. You have this troubled kid who has a, a mom who has basically ditched him for her uh, sugar daddy, rich new boyfriend after his father has died. And you have Divine Joy Randolph, who's the cook at this school, who has lost her her uh, son uh, in the Vietnam War. So you have all these people who are kind of lonely and don't have anywhere to go. And they kind of find like kindred spirits in each other. They find compassion in each other while they're all forced to hang out with over Christmas break in this sort of empty, cold, dreary uh, New England school. And I just felt the connect the way this film focuses on the connection between unlikely people, how they can kind of find like human empathy and compassion in each other in the most unlikely circumstances. By the end of this movie, I was just absolutely blown away. And it, it's one of my favorite movies of the year so far. As far as Christmas movies rank, like, would you consider this like a, hey, this is a Christmas movie. We should watch this during Christmas time. And where is it in the list of like Christmas movies? Is it above like Home Alone or is it uh, below Rudolph or like where would you I mean, we, we rank Christmas movies, me and Evan Dean on this podcast once. And uh, I, it's probably top five. I mean, it's not like this isn't going to be like, you know, Christmas cheer all the time, you know, like it's a real Christmas movie. It's not like about, you know, uh, the, it's not about the myths that are around Christmas. It, it doesn't even really exemplify the things that people think about when they think of Christmas. But like I said, it sort of puts a spotlight on those hidden things. Like it's not going to touch what might be my favorite Christmas movie of all time, which is a Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, <laughs> Excellent movie. I Excellent love movie. that movie so much, dude. It's I love so it. good. Evan Dean ripped on it when I put that in my top three, by the way. So just another wow. thing that we can, we can uh, slander him for while he's not here to defend himself. But mm. uh, I would have it in the top five, man. It, it really, like I said, all the things I said, I loved it. You know, it's set in the 1970s, and I've heard one of the criticisms is it, it kind of largely ignores, like, the turbulence of the time, you know, the counterculture movement, the anti-war movement, the, you know, the hippies running everywhere, civil rights. I mean, that's obviously all going on during this time period. The movie doesn't really focus on that, which, whatever, I think that's fine. I don't think this is meant to be a movie that has that kind of scope, you know? I think it's meant to be sort of like a film that has a small personal scope about Paul Giamatti finding ways to connect with people. This kid finding a mentor in Paul Giamatti, uh, divine joy Randolph finding like a family when she thinks she's lost her whole family. You know, it's just like these very relatable human emotions that I think everyone can relate to because everyone's felt lonely at times, you know? And I think that this movie does a great job sort of showing how you might find that you can find kinship and you can find family in the most unlikely places. And I just, the setting, the way the pacing of the movie, the way the characters develop all three of them, the way that they kind of come to an understanding, but still understand that they're not like a perfect fit, but they can still respect each other. I just loved everything about it. And Alexander Payne has a way of telling these kind of stories where it's sort of like a slice of life or, he just has a great way of kind of tapping into um, just the way humans are and putting it on screen in a way that's very digestible. So uh, the holdovers, I ended up giving an eight and a half uh, out of 10 and I have it ranked as my second favorite film of the year. So I would highly, highly recommend going to see this, seeking it out. I think it might be on digital now, but I would expect to, for this film to, to get a few nominations and maybe even win around Oscar season. So Mike, I, I think you would really enjoy this film. 
Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it. I I I wanted to see it. I'm excited to get to watch it before we recorded, but uh yeah, when I watch it, I'll let you know. All right, well, moving on to something completely different is a movie called Saltburn. It's a oh, black comedy. This I did watch. This yeah. one I did watch. Oh, yeah, man. Black comedy, psychological thriller. It's directed by Emerald Fennel. It stars uh, Barry Keegan, Jacob Elordi, Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, Allison Oliver, and Archie um, Madakwe. Um, it's set in Oxford in North Hampshire, England. It focuses on an Oxford University student has become fixated with a popular aristocratic fellow student at the university who later invites him to spend the summer at his family's uh, estate, his eccentric family's estate. I might say, Mike, I don't, I have no clue what to say about this film. So I'm just going to toss it to you. I, I quite frankly, I'm confused. Um, okay. So here's the premise. Uh, you got this guy, you know, and he <laughs> said the premise. <laughs> That's uh, all I have is the premise. Give me something he, else. I know nothing else. Basically. I mean, how spoiler do we want to get with this one? Because this is a very, okay. We're just going to, I'll try to keep accept it. That we, I think people accept that we spoil movies. Actually, yeah. I, I can't talk about this one with, without spoiling it. Cause there's the ending is, is okay. So, <laughs> Um, spoiler alert he gets yeah uh oliver this guy he gets into oxford and he, like you know all these upper class people he feels like he doesn't fit in and then he meets felix who's this like handsome charming like rich dude and it's jacob alordi uh, from uh euphoria if you've seen that show yeah uh and then uh he they like, tells him about his tragic backstory they become good buddies and then um uh, he invites him to come spend the summer back like, with his crazy family at the family country house, Saltburn. Like, basically, it, it's got some, like, Brideshead Revisited meets Cruel Intentions kind of set up a little bit. And then he just gets in his way into this weird little family of, like, rich, kind of eccentric snobs. And he just starts manipulating and, like, having sex with everyone uh and then murders them all uh essentially over time and uh yeah ends up with all the money and the house it's but what but what is this? it's a thing this movie like, what is it like what is the point what are they getting at here because i'm like is it supposed to be funny or like uh, a yeah. weird because like depressing shit is happening but like it seems like they're going about it as like a black comedy. Like you're, you're supposed to be laughing at this crazy stuff happening. Yeah. That, that is the thing is I don't, I didn't feel it. It's registered as a black comedy, but I didn't really feel, I, I thought it was maybe a drama or a mystery thriller or like nothing about this really struck me as funny. Like I know the British have a dry sense of humor, but this is almost too dry or like, it doesn't feel like it even fits in the genre of comedy, at least for me. Um, it's not that it wasn't a good movie. It's just like I don't, I don't know why it's classified as a as a comedy. Um, I, the only time that I really did laugh, there was one time I laughed, and that was when the reveal is is uh, is is seen where Oliver and Felix go to Oliver's uh, family home in Prescott, and then after Oliver said all this like tragic stuff about his family and his father's dead and everything, and his he gets he gets there and he's like, oh, you meet his parents and they're nice and they're normal and the father's alive, and Felix just completely plays along like, oh, so nice to meet you, <laughs> oh yeah, and 
and like really good acting on by Jacob Elordi in that scene because the way he just nails like the he's laughing fakely but also like he's like like just completely freaked out by like ah, what the hell okay yeah they're all alive this is BS <laughs> they have no idea their son's been lying the whole time to me oh gosh like the heartbreak the anger the fakeness like the way he laughs it all off in that scene is hilarious that that is funny but other than that there's nothing else in the movie that i was thought was funny to be honest i think it's supposed to laugh at a lot of this and i just wasn't really getting it i mean i i guess i if when i thought about it i was kind of like maybe if you like view the film as kind of like um i don't know almost like the main character played by barry keegan is like having like a, a like a vivid fantasy that he's like getting to live out in real life because like he's like this kind of he's a scholarship kid at oxford comes from you know he makes up this story about a broken family to kind of like draw compassion for himself so it's almost like he's trying to like i don't know get after the rich or or get after the people who are in privilege at oxford and he's created this elaborate plan and he gets to like play it out by like slowly picking them off one by one by manipulating all these stupid people who are like so overly the top ridiculous and stupid and characters caricatures of themselves like Carrie Mulligan is in this one too. She's like this poor acquaintance that like just lingers around the home and everyone's like, so when are you leaving? But of course you can stay, you know, like it's just that over and over, you know, I think Rosamund Pike is probably the standout in this movie for me where she's like Mm. the mom where she's just like this totally aloof, but also kind of like, brutally blunt lady who just like says yeah whatever comes to her mind like oh honey we don't do that here or oh honey you don't you can't wear that to dinner you know just like it's kind of like i don't i think i think this film's too intellectual for me and i don't say that very often mike but like i think this film went over my head i really do because i'm having a hard time kind of explaining what i saw i mean the film ends with him dancing around naked in the house so it's kind of almost just like him like you know like laughing ha 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 look what i've done to the rich and mighty just me you know little Barry Keegan and he's like slurping up his jizz in a in a tub. You know, that's like a film, a scene that everyone's talking about. I'm just I don't really see how this all comes together. And I think it might just be going over to my head. And I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, OK, so I do have some thoughts. Uh, the, the movie definitely has a lot of like graphic sexual things in it right where it's like debauchery all over the place yeah there's a lot of debauchery where you know like he he the bloody mouth in the bathtub i think if you watch it you know i'm talking about um the uh you know licking up the about the bloody mouth licking up the semen in the bathtub um you know the uh literal fucking of a grave uh which bravo to the actor for you know having the guts to do that on on camera and then again, like the naked dance, um, you know, the naked happy, yay! My, it's my my mansion now. I've killed the all these people. The naked happy dance. <laughs> so there's a lot of debauchery, right? Which is usually like something that you would associate maybe with the like evil upper classes or something. The way the movie comes with that narrative, but there's also a sense of of nakedness as I think a core thing. So there were two very key moments of nudity. With uh, done by Barry uh, Kogan. Uh, what? The, how do you say his last name? Kogan. I keep saying Keegan, but I, Keegan? I don't really actually. Know. Uh, if you're if you ever listen to this, sorry, you were you were great in the film, dude. Uh, but so when he comes to the grave, right? And there's a question of did I love him? Did I hate him? I 
like in some ways maybe there is a beginning of love and then when he realizes oh he rejects me then there's hate but yeah, either so way like at, his, at, them, at his grave we have the nakedness because now he is who he really is before him the one person who is secret who he was naked before is dead but he was never naked with him and hmm. so then he expresses that by one fucking the grave to be like, oh, I just wanted to do this so bad to you, and now I can only do it to your grave. But also there's a, hey, I hate you so much, I'm fucking your grave. Take like there's it's a dual like yeah. the yeah, there's duality to the the debauchery. And even with like the blood, oh, blood in the bathtub. Wow. Like there's the love of blood, but then there's the hate blood. It's almost Does like that kind of makes only, sense. No, yeah. I mean, you said something. I mean, it's almost like he's only able to be his like real self when he's naked. You know, mm-hmm. like I mean, that's kind of what it seems like at times. Because uh, other other than that, he's putting on a front, or he's like making something up, or he's he's acting like someone he isn't. And I don't know. This guy Barry Keegan, he gets typecast into like kind of weirdos. Like Killing of a Sacred Deer is a movie that comes to mind. Uh, even what was the movie we just watched? Uh, um, uh, Banshees of Banshees Inishirin. of Yeah, I mean, he, he's kind of weird in that. He was the Joker in the the Batman deleted scenes, and right. he kills all the puppies in Chernobyl. Remember that? Oh yeah. <laughs> so he is kind of like typecasting this goofy, <laughs> weird stuff, but the, it was well acted. It looked great. The cinematography was great. Um, I think that you know you're in these grand locations. I think that Emerald Fennel and the cinematographers did a great job, sort of you know using that to its full potential that maze uh is is a really cool sort of plot device and sort of makes it unsettling when things are going on there i just think this film kind of like built and built and built and the end was kind of a little bit of a letdown to me like i I wasn't exactly shocked i i think that she leads she does a good job sort of building up but maybe doesn't deliver fully on things and i think there's a lot of good ideas going on here but i'm not sure they all come to have together cohesively I seem to be in the minority in that because a lot of people have loved this movie and they seem to be blown away by it. I think it maybe is going a little bit over my head. I think I maybe didn't appreciate it or grasp it as much as I should have. And maybe I should go back and watch it again and it'll maybe make more sense to me when I know what's going on. Um, but, you know, this is a film you're going to be hearing about. And if nothing else, Mike, this certainly was like a, you know, like WTF movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that for me is what kept me interested while I was watching it. Because when I saw the trailers, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't that interested. Um, but then, like, when I watched it, I did pay attention the whole time. Like, the acting was really good. Um, it kept you glued to, what What are these characters going to do? What? Why are they doing this? What's really going on? What's this guy's game? You know, because it, it kind of sets you up with, like, a, hey, you have a hint from the opening scene that someone's going to be dead by the end of this. Because he's talking about him in the past tense. And it's like, then it cuts back to show. It's like, okay, like what, what's going to have happened? Um, but then so it had that vibe of like something like old, old movies like Laura or, or uh, uh, Rebecca. So those older, like 1940s movies. Uh, but then like when you're building the relationships, like that's when you start kind of caring about these characters and, when things start getting really like like you said WTF, that's when you're like, okay, where is this going? And it makes you it made me at least want to pay attention more. And so I had an enjoyable experience watching the movie because it it is unique 
Like uh, there were, I did not predict what would happen in the next. Like I did, nothing could, nothing could be predicted in this movie, which was at least refreshing. And yet, like I, I don't know, the gratuitousness of it and the creepiness of it, and also just the lack of any maybe satisfying resolution or or lesson or meaning. I felt, I feel like there was a lot of emptiness at the bottom of this film, where I was like, okay. So what was the point of all that? Like, yeah, this guy lies, meets this other guy, you know, connives his way into his life because he maybe he's crushing on him or maybe he's already planning on murdering. We never, we never really know why he first like picked uh, Felix. Like, did you pick him because he was crushing on him, or did you pick him because yeah. he was always going to murder him? Like, that's never really clear. Um, yeah, and maybe Felix he had, like, never did. Yeah, like Felix never does anything. Where if it's like, oh, his whole plan was to take this family's money, it's like, well, Felix never did anything to him. Like he was just a nice guy, and like he even staged the whole bike thing to have to force Felix to meet him. So like you feel bad that Felix died, and yet there's parts of it where it's set up as if you're meant to feel glad that this family's dead now. Where it's like, well, okay, so they're a weird rich family. Like, so you murder them, like. That that okay, that's 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 not good. Like or I, I don't know, is it is it like the is the lesson that the climb for money turns you into the evil that like controls money? I, I, it, I feel like the ultimate takeaway from the film can be whatever you make of it, but there was also I don't know, just so much WTF going on, it's like what what's even worth taking away from this? I don't know. But it was well acted. It was interesting. It was original. You know, it, it was it was nice having like a story you could really really follow and be like, hey, I'm not looking at a bunch of franchise names or something. But yeah, it was just it was it was just a lot of WTF without really anything that I felt I could think about other than just yeah, wow, that was crazy. <laughs> what grade would you give it? I'd give it an A minus. Yeah, I'm gonna six and a half out of ten because it it was original it was uh well acted and it looked great and there were entertaining oh it looked oh i will say this movie looks amazing mad props to the cinematographer to the lighting to the direct like the the movie looked incredible like and i i loved that about it even nice little choices where like they throw the rock in and you don't hear the splash you hear like the and you know the rust i, lo I love that the camera just stayed on them and we experienced that through the sound effect and we could just watch their reactions naturally for it. Like little, little moments like that. It was, there was a, there was some good directing instincts that Emerald Fennel had, I thought uh, for this, that I really liked. That's Saltburn. I believe it's on Amazon prime. So if you want to check it out, uh, go ahead, but definitely be ready for some, uh, some shit. <laughs> Let's just say that. Literally. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm just going to quickly review one more film here. I saw it last night with my buddy. It's the iron claw. Uh, it is a biographical sports drama. It's directed by Sean Durkin. It's based on the life of the professional wrestler Kevin Von Erich in the Von Erich family, uh, who was a, a very influential part of professional wrestling in the 1980s. Uh, you know, this film getting a lot of buzz for its performances, for its look, for its uh, take on the classic sports genre. I'm not a huge wrestling guy, Mike. I don't know about you if you're if you've got some some roots there in the professional wrestling scene. Nope. Um, but it's not really my bread and butter. But 
I've always been fascinated by it. You know, I've, I've watched it from time to time. You know, it can be entertaining, I think. Uh, obviously, it's created huge megastars like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You know, John Cena's come through wrestling, stuff like that. I've always been fascinated by just the idea of it that, like, they're packing arenas, like, all the time for people to watch this stuff. And everybody in there knows it's not real. It, not real in, like, a sense that it's actually, like, you know, like these guys actually hate each other. Like they're actors. It's entertainment. I mean, it's real. The stuff they're doing in this movie. One of the things it does really well is kind of show us like the actual toll the wrestlers go through. And I've always just been fascinated by like this cultural phenomenon that as a sports fan, and then you have these, this whole like sort of group of sports fans that will just like suspend reality completely to act like these guys are actually going after real titles and they're in real feuds and they're in real things. I just, it's always been an interesting like human psyche thing for me. Uh, great performances in this Zach Efron, uh, what Jeremy Allen white, is that his name? Our guy from the bear and, and shameless, you know, I, I love to see him sort of getting these big film roles. That's awesome to see, you know, it's a, this is a sports movie, but Sports are more the backdrop to this film, which is more about like family. It's about parental influence. It's about sibling rivalry and sort of the dangers that can come out of that, even if the intentions are good and pure. Like the dad mm -hmm. is like a famous uh, wrestler from way back in the day. And his whole thing is, you know, wrestling and raising his sons to be manly men in Texas and love God and take care of their family. And the mom kind of stays out of everything because it's not her place to to raise the men in a certain way. That's all on the dad. Um, and their dad does love them, but it's sort of like this tough love. And the film sort of examines this ob obsession that these brothers have to make their father proud. And they're putting themselves through hell and they're doing, you know, just things that are sort of no sane person would do all with the goal and the sole purpose of making their dad proud. So it's just like a sports drama that is way more layered than just what's happening between the lines. Um, and I really appreciated this film for that. But what what, what have you heard about this movie? Um, I've heard really good things. Um, I've heard it does a great job, like not just making you care about the the brothers and the relationships but also like the sport itself um uh, did any particular performance stand out to you like i mean zach efron is absolutely incredible i mean he's mm -hmm. <clears throat> like he's come a long way from high school musical mike i mean he's he's obviously done serious roles before you know he's he's been he's sort of been diving into you know the straight prestige actor stuff but i couldn't believe it when i saw him in this movie i mean he's obviously He's a wrestler, so he's in his wrestling underwear. I don't know what the hell else you call it. That's what he, he's wearing underwear out on the, out in the ring. Leotard. No, he's not in tights or a leotard. He's just got the like the underwear. That's his his uniform. He doesn't even wear boots. Mm. He's actually mm. this guy. His character Kevin Von Erich is known as one of the the best wrestlers that wrestled barefoot. So he's just out there, you know, being an animal and nothing but basically underwear. But he's absolutely jacked. Like he must have gained so much weight for this role. Like he it yeah. looks like. He looks like somebody who's who's in like bodybuilding competitions in this. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, he's he plays the he plays the guy who's <clears throat> kind of like the he's the oldest brother, but he's the second oldest because the brother who was older than him died when he was five years old. And there's a lot of focus on that. So he feels like a responsibility to care for all his younger brothers and kind of be the intermediary between them and, and their dad, who, like I said, loves them, but can be kind of like hard and thorny and kind of hard to to get under the skin and kind of uh, sort of understand what's driving him. And 
the movie really focuses, you know, like I said, on sibling rivalry, but the brothers really love each other. And it's almost like, you know, the toxic masculinity, I guess you could say, you know, like where it's, where it's like, these guys are so hell bent on being the manly man of the family and making their father proud that they have like intense psychological issues. They have depression issues. They're abusing drugs to try and get in the ring as quiet as possible. They can't talk about their issues out loud with each other. They don't know who to go to. And we see in the film that leads to a lot of problems. So it's, I think that that's a really relevant sort of thing because I think even in recent years, it's only been in recent years where us guys have kind of been able to talk about mental health, like without feeling shamed about it, you know, like how long has it been? Like, you got to suck it up, rub some dirt on it. Like an entire generation of men, including you and me were raised on that mentality. And I think that just now we're starting to be able to come around to like, it's okay to be, you know, hurt. It's okay to be insecure. It's okay to talk about something with people. And this movie really examines that in the dangers of not being able to do that. And uh, for that reason, I think it kind of like went outside of the classic, sports drama and and really sort of just sort of went deeper it went deeper into what these wrestlers i mean do you remember the movie with mickey rourke um uh, the wrestler? wrestler yeah do you remember that movie? Uh, did you watch that i i never saw it but i remember it being like this big deal and mickey rourke's performance especially was like really praised for it right so this takes place in the same time period that was 1980s this is 1980s that was uh, a fictional guy but he's sort of dealing with that same thing where he's all dealing with all these issues outside the ring, just, you know, and how it impacts him. And this sort of does it more on a familial level. Whereas that one is more just about a single guy trying to relate to his family, but it, it does a lot of those same things that um, sort of really add some depth to it. I mean, there's, there's a scene where Zach Efron after some tragic stuff has happened where he's just like relentlessly throwing himself against the ropes back and forth. You know, he he's falling on the, like doing like falls time and time again, just like, abusing his body just because this is the only way he knows how to vent his only way he knows how to cope with the things that have gone on. Um, the wrestling sheen- scenes are really well shot. They're super kinetic. Um, you feel like you're in the ring with these guys. Like if you remember the movie miracle, uh, how they kind of like used really, um, you know, unique like filming techniques where they're like putting guys on the ice and they really put you in the action where you can hear the skates grinding and the shots ringing off the crossbar and the crowd noise. This does a good job of kind of putting you in the ring and kind of putting you in there with the wrestlers, how you feel it. Uh, You really do feel it. You feel the emotion, you feel the tension. Um, So in that way, it was, it was really well done. And I think the iron claw itself, you know, that's what it's called because that's like the signature move that their dad did that a lot of these guys are trying to do. But I also think it's kind of like symbolic of like the grip that their father has on them. You know, that they have the iron claw just grabbing at them all the time and they can never escape the, the loving, but ultimately toxic influence of their father. And this movie really just examines all that uh, to sad, but ultimately uplifting, I guess uh, ends. And for that reason, I just think it's a really elevated, um, sports film and i gave it an eight out of ten cool yeah this is another one i, I do want to say um yeah it's uh it sounds like a really good movie yeah the one criticism i mean one of the criticisms i'll have is the guy who rick flair is obviously a huge wrestling figure in the 80s he has a guy who's playing in this in this it felt kind of weird it felt like that was the only performance where i was like they couldn't find someone better to play rick flair because he feels kind of like a guy who's like sort of like 
I don't know, doing like a cosplay of Ric Flair rather than an actor who's actually embodying the person. I don't know. It, it can be complicated because like the wrestlers themselves have a persona that they use on TV. And then there's the real person like the rock isn't the real person that Dwayne Johnson is. Right. So like, it's, it's kind of like mm-hmm. this multi-layered thing, but I just thought they could have done a better job of that because it just felt kind of like more of a performance more than natural. Whereas all the other performances in the movie felt very natural. So it just kind of stuck out to me a little bit, but um, overall, I mean, it was, it was a very good, uh, sports drama. It doesn't end with the big game, which I appreciated. And it doesn't sugarcoat things that don't need to be sugarcoated. So, um, I, I think that this film, I don't know if it's going to get like, I don't think it got any golden globe awards. I'm not sure it'll, if it will get any Academy awards. If it does probably Zach Efron, I would guess. Um, but it's, uh, it's worth watching. It, it's a, it's a fun film. It's a challenging film at times. Um, but ultimately I'm glad this is a story that was told because I didn't know anything about the Von Eric family. And once you find out about their story, you will definitely want to learn more about it. So I would highly recommend checking out the iron claw. I will, I will say one thing as we start off the new year, one thing I did for me that was great. And I, I would encourage all of our listeners to do it. I did a gratitude journalist here, but a lot of times, like I'm not great at new year's resolutions and often the new year's resolutions I see are like do something every day. And I don't, I don't know if I have the ability to do something, anything every day, but a gratitude journal, the way I did it was uh, had a like page tear out calendar uh, for so I was like a page of every single day of the year and you can just tear the page out every single Monday and like when I sometime during the day I tore that Monday page out and on the back of it I just wrote down everything that I was grateful for or good things that had happened in the last week I only had to write like one thing but like it usually turned into like multiple things like you know got some kudos at work or had a nice date night or whatever it was like, you know, as soon as I remembered one thing that was good, I remembered, like, three things. So, like, you know, I've, I basically would write down good things on the back of the page from last week, and then I would, like, fold it up, put it in a jar. By the end of the year, I had a full mason jar of just little rolled-up Mondays, 52, 52 rolled-up paper Mondays, all of good things. And I got it out, and I read it all, and I was just really, really moved by it and inspired by it. And I had friends tell me, like, dude, since you've done the gratitude calendar, like, you're, you've been a lot less annoying to be around. Like, you're much more positive. You know, you have a better perspective on things. So if you need a New Year's resolution to do, um, yeah, dude, just do a, a once-a-week gratitude, uh, gratitude calendar for yourself. There you go. Wise words from Mike Nichols to end the podcast. I'm grateful. For this podcast i'm grateful for you mike that's all uh, i'm also uh, grateful for the podcast <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's gonna do it i think for today's episode of the second day film podcast uh covered a lot of films there covered some good ones i think that you'll be hearing about here in award season uh but that's gonna do it for today's episode appreciate everyone for listening so for mike nichols i'm brandon champion until next time thank you once again for listening to the second day film podcast and we'll see you at the movie